At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms. And Psalm number 139. Many of you are aware of a classic American cartoon strip that has spanned at least two generations. And that cartoon strip was one of my favorites. It still is out there. It's the strip Peanuts by Charles Schultz. And if you know that cartoon strip, you'll know that there is one character in that cartoon strip by the name of Lucy. And Lucy is the skeptic in Peanuts. And then you have another character by the name of Linus. And Linus is the resident biblical philosopher in the comic strip Peanuts. And this week, I was looking at a particular comic strip that appeared a number of years ago, and I wanted to show it to you. I have it up on the screen here. But in this strip, what's happening is that Lucy and Linus are inside a house. They're in a picture window. It is pouring rain. And in the first panel, Lucy says... Boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus in the second frame says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. In the third panel, Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And then in the final panel, Linus says, Sound theology has a way of doing that. And it's true. Sound theology can take a great load off of our mind. We began last week a series of messages that I have entitled Core Truth. And Core Truth, men and women, is the epitome of sound theology. And as we look at this core truth throughout this month, We're looking at truth that is foundational, it is fundamental, it is essential truths, and because they are truths that are foundational and fundamental and essential, we need to be reminded of them. We need to be refreshed by them, even if they are familiar to us, because here's what happens. When we become disconnected from core truth, we lose some of our wonder of God. When we become disconnected from core truth, there is a loss of joy in our life. There is an opportunity for our eternal perspective to grow more shallow when we lose connection with core truth. And when we are disconnected from it, our worship is weakened. So it is good that we're taking some time to look at core truth. Last week we began this series and we looked first at the core truth that God knows me. God knows all about me. God meticulously designed me. And if you were not here last week, I would urge you to listen to that message. You can find it on our website, wildwoodchurch.org, or you can find it on our Facebook page, Wildwood Community Church. But if you missed that message, the core truth that God knows me, I would urge you to listen to it. Today we're going to look at the second core truth, and this is one of the most encouraging one of the most comforting truths in Scripture. And the second core truth we're going to look at today 
is the core truth that God is always there. God is always there. You know, life has in it many valleys, many situations where we can be tempted to be discouraged. Sometimes it can be the valley of poor health, either our own poor health or the poor health of a loved one. Sometimes it's the valley of ridicule or abuse that may be coming our way. Sometimes it's the valley of just personal spiritual failure where we can't believe we did that or we said that. Sometimes it's the valley of just the events that are going on in the world. Sometimes it's the valley of a severe financial setback that we've never experienced before. Sometimes it's the valley of the death of a, of a loved one. There are many valleys that we go through in life, and many of those valleys are dark places with imposing shadows. And there's comfort for us when we're in those dark valleys with imposing shadows in core truth. Particularly, there's comfort in the core truth that God is always there. If you have your Bible open to the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, I'm going to read this morning from verses 7 to 12, and I'm also going to read verses 17 and 18 and invite you to follow along in your Bible. Psalm 139, David is writing, and he says there, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Drop down to verse 17. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now in our time together this morning, we're going to really be looking at two different things. Number one, we're gonna look at the truth that he is always there. And then secondly, we're going to look at a profound reality that all too often we don't remember in life. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at this core truth that he is always there. Go back to verse 7 in Psalm 139. He says there, "'Where can I go from your spirit?' Or where can I flee from your presence? That word presence in the original language is literally face. Where can I flee from your face? By the way, these are rhetorical questions he's asking here. It's not like he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. And he says in in, in verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Now, if you were with us last time, we talked about a figure of speech in Hebrew called a merism. And what happens in a merism is you have one opposite, then you have another opposite communicated, 
And the idea is it's not only this opposite and this opposite, but everything that is in between. And so we have here another merism when he says, if I ascend to heaven, this is a vertical merism, it's an up and down one. He says, if I ascend to heaven, if I go up to the highest place, the highest height, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, into the realm of the dead, which would be the lowest place that you could descend to, the lowest depth that you could go, you are there. Do you see how it works? If I go to the highest place, you're there. If I go to the lowest place, you're there, which also means you're everywhere in between. And then look at verse 9. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Another merism. This is, this is a horizontal one. This is an east-west merism. He, he says, if I take the wings of the dawn, if you're in Jerusalem and you go east from Jerusalem to the far reaches, that's where the sun arises from. And then he says, if I... Take the wings of the dawn. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if you know your geography, you know that to the west from Jerusalem is the Mediterranean Sea. And so he says, if I go to where the sun comes up, or if I go to the remotest part of the Mediterranean Sea out there, even there and everywhere in between, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You're present right next to me, whether I'm the highest or the lowest or to the east or to the west. What he's really saying is you're everywhere in the universe, God. Look at at verse 11 and verse 12. He says, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. You ever feel that way in life, like the darkness is just overwhelming you? If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, God, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You know, isn't it interesting that the majority of the crimes that are committed are committed in darkness? Why is that? Well, there's people have this sense, you know, that people won't know what we're doing if we do it in the darkness. You know, no one will really see if we do it in the darkness. But darkness has no concealing power with God. Darkness isn't dark to God. To God, the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You know, know, the truth of the matter is, men and women, there are times in our life, I know because I've been through it, I know you've been through it, where we feel overwhelmed by darkness. But as it says in Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The core truth is, God is always there. And just as we saw last week, there is a theological term for this. It's called omnipresence. God is omnipresent. Present. What does omnipresent mean? It means God is everywhere at all times. Everywhere at all times. Jeremiah 23, 24. 
This is the Lord speaking. He says, can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? No, God is everywhere at all times. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? He's always there. He's everywhere at all times. Now, it's important to understand that omnipresence is not pantheism. Pantheism is a particular view of God that exists in our world. Here's what pantheism says. Pantheism says God is everything and everything is God. That's not omnipresence. Omnipresence isn't God is everything and everything is God. Omnipresence is it's impossible to go where God isn't. See, it's different. God is not everything. Everything's not God. But God is always there. You know, earlier I mentioned how life often has many valleys. And, and, and David understood that. And David had experienced that. You and I have experienced that. And another psalm he wrote that many of us are familiar with is Psalm 23. And, and we went through that as a study as a church, Psalm 23. But I want to remind you of a verse from Psalm 23. It's verse 4. And David's writing again, and he says this. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What is interesting, by the way, about that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, is that it is one word in Hebrew. doesn't necessarily involve death at all. In fact, in the margin of the New American Standard Bible, it says, even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness. You ever been there? The New Living Translation translates it this way, even though I walk through the darkest valley. And maybe that's exactly where you are today. I don't know. Even though I go through the valley of deep darkness, even though I'm in the darkest valley, what's the next word say? I will fear no evil. Why does he say that? Why would he ever say that? Well, what's the next phrase? For you are with me. Core truth, God is always there. This is a repeating theme over and over and over and over and over again in the word of God. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Isaiah writes this, he says, do not fear, this is actually God speaking through Isaiah, do not fear for I am with you, do not anxiously look about you for I am your God, I will strengthen you, surely I will help you, surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What's God saying? I'm always there. I'm always there. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's just a repeating theme. And I want to read to you a series of four passages. And and so uh, I'm going to put you to work this morning. I want you to note in these four passages as I read them a common phrase that shows up over and over again. There's not going to be a quiz on this, but I, I want you to Take note as I read these passages, all right? First passage is Moses speaking to Joshua, Deuteronomy 31.6. And Moses says this to Joshua. 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Second passage. Moses still speaking to Joshua two verses later. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. God speaking later on then to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, verse five. I will be with you. I will not fail or forsake you. And then we have David speaking to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 20. He says to Solomon, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. You notice the phrase that keeps getting repeated? He will not fail you or forsake you. He will not fail you or forsake you. I will not fail you or forsake you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. He's always there. And what is interesting is that when you come to the New Testament, the author to the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 5, picks up on this phrase. And he writes to those believers, and he says, make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, now, one of the reasons why we, we talk about being important to study the word of God is sometimes we are reading it and we just read a verse and we miss a lot of the thrust of things because we are not looking into the most important principle of all Bible study, which is a word that begins with the letter C, and that word is, do you know what it is? It's the word context, yeah. And so when you read Hebrews 13, 5, and you just read through that, make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and we can just go through that, and whoo, we miss the whole feel of that. What were they feeling when he wrote those words? Well, they were in a valley of deep darkness, the Hebrews were. They were experiencing deep affliction in their life. If you read through the book, you'll find out that many of them, because they were followers of Jesus, had lost their jobs. No way to put food on the table. Many of them, because they were followers of Jesus, had been disowned by their families. We don't ever want to talk to you again. Many of them, because they were followers of Jesus, had been thrown into prison. Prisons in that day, by the way, weren't, you know, color TV, high def everywhere. Not a very nice place to be. Many of them, because they followed Jesus, had lost all their possessions. And you know, again, if we forget what people were feeling, imagine in your life that tomorrow, like that, everything you have, you lose. These people to whom he was writing felt like their world had collapsed. Ever felt that way? That's how they felt. That world just collapsed. 
And, and what does the author of the Hebrews do here? He repeats this phrase. And what is really interesting is, in Greek, he adds a lot of depth to it. There in Hebrews 13.5, he says of God, I will never leave you. Now here's just a little tip into Greek. In Greek, one way that they could really emphasize this like triple underlining something is to take two negatives and you put them together. It's what we call an ou-may phrase. The ou is O-U, like Oklahoma University, and the may is like M-E. It's an ou-may phrase. Two negatives that are linked together. And when you take an ou and a may together, it means absolutely never, ever. I will never leave you, absolutely never, ever leave you. The verb leave means to let go, to give up on, to leave behind without support. I will absolutely never, ever let you go, give up on you, or leave you behind without support. And then he goes on to say, I will never forsake you. It's, it's another ooh and may put together. In fact, to, to emphasize how this is just not going to happen, he throws in a fifth negative. I will never, absolutely never, ever forsake you. The word forsake means to leave in distress, to leave helpless, to cut off connection with. I will absolutely never, ever, ever do that. Let me ask you, the word never. Does it include now? Just so I know you're still tuning, you can just do this, nod, okay? It includes right now. Does the word never include tomorrow? Yeah, it does. I will never, absolutely ever, never leave you nor forsake you. You know what the next words are in Hebrews 13? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. See, that's an expression of the promise of his presence. He's always there. It's an expression of his steadfast faithfulness. God is always there. And you know what we need to do? We need to permanently banish the thought that God is not there. And because we are never alone, we are never without the resources that we need. We're never without the grace that we need. You know, when I had my first major surgery in, in 2016 up in Oklahoma City, We had to basically kind of shut down my digestive system in order to do that, and I'm there in the hospital, and my digestive system did not restart like it should have. And I, I can still completely remember every emotion. I remember being there in my hospital room, and I was completely bloated out with gas, but my system was not restarting and therefore 
moving along this gas, and I, was become, I became so bloated, you just wouldn't have believed it. And while I was bloated like this, I became incredibly nauseous. And, and I was so uncomfortable, I could only sit up, and I was leaning against the wall. And I knew just at any moment something was big was going to erupt because of all this. And of course, eventually it did. You know, and I'm there and I'm thinking, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get through? And honestly, you know, you push that button. How am I gonna get through 30 more seconds of this? And I can remember being up against that wall like that, and I'm saying, Lord, I need your help. And you know what my confidence was holding on to? He's always there. I didn't know how I was going to get through 30 more seconds. I got through a whole lot more time than that, and I'm here today. He's always there. Whether you're having a good day or a bad day, he's always there. Whether you're having a happy day or a sad day, he is always there. Armand Tiffe put together what he calls an amplified paraphrase of what we've been looking at from Hebrews 13. But here's, here's an amplified paraphrase as he wrote it. This is what God is saying to you and to me. I will never, no, not ever, no, never leave you behind, abandon you, desert you, give up on you, let go of you, leave you helpless, let you down, nor shall I ever relax my hold on you. Go back to Psalm 139, look at verse 17. David's been reveling in the first core truth that he knows me and the second core truth that he is always there. And in verse 17, he says, how precious are your thoughts to me, Oh, God. Literally, in Hebrew, it says, how heavy. It's a word that just simply means what great weight, what great value it has to me. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. He's saying your character is so vast. So vast, so incredibly vast. God is always there. Now, we could stop right there this morning and we go, amen, glad I came to Wildwood today. Well, there's a second thing I want us to look at that is so very important, and that is a profound reality. See, core truth number one is that God knows me. God knows all things. Core truth number two is that God is always there. Now, here's what happens. When you knit those two things together, that God knows me and God is always there, God knows all things, he's always there. When you knit them together, it underscores God's providence in all that happens. And we, we, had a, we saw a hint of that in verse 16 of Psalm 139 when he says to God, in your book, were all written the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one of them. You take the fact that God knows and God is always there and you knit them together and it emphasizes his providence in all that happens. You know, we see that in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You remember that story, right? 
As a very young teen, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. And again, when you read things like that, try to climb back into it and feel it. Imagine you're a young teen and all your brothers turn on you and they sell you to this surly group of people you've never met and they are marching you off to be sold in the slave market. And then imagine you're in as a young teen in a slave market and people barking out numbers and you're wondering, what am I going to be sold for? What am I going to end up being? What's going to happen to me? And with all that going on, it says in Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph. God knew what was going on, and he was there. Later on, you know the story. He was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife, and he's tossed into prison. And not, not a fancy prison like we have today. This was not a place you wanted to be. And it says in Genesis thirty nine twenty one, the Lord was with Joseph. God knew what was going on, and he was there. And you know what? If you follow the story long enough, you, you realize that Joseph learned that. That God knew and God was there. And, and all that means is he is providentially at work in all that happens. And later on, when he gets reunited with his brothers, you remember what he said to them? He says, hey, dudes, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Translation, God had a providential plan all along. What Joseph was saying to his brothers is that his fingerprints are on all that happens. That is true in your life, and that is true in my life. I love the way Steve Farrar puts it. He says, do you think it was a coincidence that Moses was born at a time when Pharaoh had all Hebrew boys killed? Was it coincidental that his mother hid him in the reeds along the river and that Pharaoh's daughter found him? Was it random chance that he was raised as Pharaoh's son? Was it just a bad break that he got caught killing that Egyptian while defending his Jewish brother? Was it just chance that he fled for his life and lived for 40 years in obscurity? Was it coincidence that he was walking by the bush that burned with divine fire? Was it happenstance that he was on the scene when God was ready to deliver his people out of Egypt? Were all these occurrences just a remarkable string of coincidences? Of course, he says, no, of course not. God's fingerprints aren't all that happens. God's providence is at work in everything that occurs. It was ordained by God that my great-grandmother, Ophia, yes, that was her name, met and married my great-grandfather, Wade. God ordained that my grandmother, Mildred, who earlier had had a child out of wedlock, met and married my grandfather, Alfred. My middle name is named after him. God ordained that my mother, Wanda, would meet and marry my father, Ed. And then part of the providence of God is that Bruce, who we saw from Ephesians 2.10, just like all of us, is God's workmanship. God gave to me a unique design, and the plan was to use me as it is for all of us to imprint the lives of others. All of that was part of God's providential work. He knew everything that was happening, 
and he was always there. Now, some people are going, whoa, time out. Are you saying we're just a robot, that we have no choices? No, I'm not saying that everybody has choices. But God's providential plan is always active. You know, when you go back to Acts chapter 2 and you see Peter delivering a message to those in Jerusalem who were gathered on the day of Pentecost, and here's part of what he says to them. He's speaking of Jesus, and he says, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you, speaking of the people who voted to have him crucified and the religious authorities, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. Did the people of Jerusalem have a choice? Yes, they had a choice. Did the religious leaders have a choice? Yes, they had a choice. Did the Roman soldiers have a choice? Yes, they had a choice. But God's providential plan was always at work. See, we have choices and we're responsible for our choices, yet God, listen to this, is so omniscient, he is so omnipresent, he is so omnipotent that our choices never derail God's rule. You say, how does that work, Bruce? I don't know. Ask him. But as Job says in Job 42, 2, to God, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Translation, there are no accidents. There are no coincidences at all. And then God speaks in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He says of himself, declaring the end from the beginning, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. And you might say, well, why, if all of that is true and his providence is always at work in everything that happens, why is it at times I feel abandoned by God? You've been there, right? <laughs> why is that? Well, part of the answer is that our eyes are riveted on the circumstances rather than on the certainty of core truth. And by the way, the enemy from the pit has a plan for your soul and that is to drag you into the dark fog of defeat. He wants you to lose sight of the core truth that he is always there. And if you look back in your life, you look back to the time that you were ill, he was there. If you look back to the time maybe that you got divorced, he was there. If you look back at the time that you lost your job, he was there. If you look back at the time you might have been sent to prison, he was there. If you look back at the time when you said goodbye to a loved one, he was there. If you look back to a time when you were really frightened and confused, maybe even when you were young, he was there. And in the future, when you are facing that medical diagnosis, he will be there. In the future, when you are completely puzzled as a parent and you don't, want to, you don't know what to do next, he will be there. When you find yourself uncertain about what the next step ought to be, he will be there. Whether this happens in two weeks, two months, or two years, there's no need to fret, no need to panic. He's already, think about this, he's already been there. You're just arriving there, but he has already been there. And because he's already been there, we are never alone. We're never without resources. We're never without the grace that we need. See, men and women, we have an infinite God who's also an intimate God. Now, I want to talk about some life response that we can have, having listened to this message. And I want to talk to two different groups of people, all right? First of all, for those who do not yet have a relationship with Jesus, here's the life response 
I would share with you, and that is run to him by faith. Run to Jesus by faith. See, Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. It's been the plan all along. And when Paul was talking to the skeptics in Acts chapter 17, and they were rejecting the person of Christ, they didn't even know who he was, he said to them, he's not far from each one of us. You may feel very far away from Jesus, but he's not far away. Run to him by faith. Why should you do that? Because he passionately cares for you. We're going to look at that more next week. Second group of people is those who already know Jesus. What life response can you have? It would be to rest in his presence by faith. Rest in his presence by faith. Remember Tiffay's amplified paraphrase? I will never, no, not ever, no, never leave you behind, abandon you, desert you, give up on you, let go of you, leave you helpless, let you down, nor shall I ever relax my hold on you. Men and women, that is core truth. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. We need it desperately. We need your perspective desperately. May you rivet it deep into our minds, this core truth that you are always there. We're never alone. We're never forsaken. No, not ever, 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 ever. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 